Yes, so Fluff was caddying for Tiger at his debut in Milwaukee. And Fluff came over to me on the fourth hole on Sunday. said, hey, Rolf, I need you to do me a favor. I said, what's that? He goes, I need you to tell everybody that this is just temporary. I'm Peter Jacobson's caddy, and this is only a temporary situation with Tiger Woods. So I said, okay, Fluff, I'll say that. So along about the fifth hole, I said something to that effect. We get over the eighth hole. Tiger makes a birdie. Then he birdies nine. Birdie's 10. Birdie's 11. I think he might have made a par. Then he made another birdie. Then he gets up on 14 and makes a hole in one. (laughs) So we're walking up to the 15th tee and Fluff kind of starts walking over to me. He goes, hey, Ross, I think I just changed my mind. (laughs) (laughs) And actually, Peter was very gracious about it, wasn't he? He was. In terms of, you know, saying this is an opportunity for Fluff. Right. You should still have it. Right. Uh, I remember, you know, meeting Peter, and he was representing Mike Lowe Beach Resort yes, at the was. time, and I did a lot about that, you know, promoting that part. And he had won the AT and T with the nine hole or the fifty-four hole cutoff, I think, when it yep. rained so hard. So he was the champion, and I asked him if he would call the next day or something to an interview. He said, "I'm coaching my son's basketball." We weren't into cell phones, everybody, but he ended up calling me from a payphone. Did he? From the school. So I was like, "This guy is." Good guy. Yeah, Pete's good. He's good. He's playing this week. I like that. I saw him up at the clubhouse, yeah. And if I was to compile all of our interviews over the years out here, we would always meet late on Sunday evening outside the media room about 7, 8 o'clock, and you would always do your last interview. I have a lot of video of those interviews, which are great. Yeah, they're really fun. I think I find them fun to look through. When I get buckled down, some of them are analog, so they'll be digitize them. Did I ever say anything you didn't believe me? No. Okay. No, you always felt to me like you were talking to me from your heart. Well, usually that's what I do. It's great. So here we are at the uh, TV compound, right? Chateau Golf Channel this week. Uh It's beautiful. And I remember when this moved out here from being by 18. Am I correct about that? Yeah, well, so the most important shot is kind of the one behind the announcers and you know, that one kind of just looked at the buildings or something, as I remember. And I think I was the one who kind of started pushing to get us out here. I have no doubt, Mark Rothstein, NBC Golf Channel, you were the one that started pushing it. Because I can remember watching it from there and there was just a small tower out here. Yeah. And as it started evolving, I was like, Mark's putting his two cents in there about how to showcase the whole area while showcasing the tournament. Hey, you know, it's interesting. I, I had this conversation um, this morning with some folks about the Champions Tour and, and you know, kind of the way it's presented in general. And I'm starting to come to the conclusion that golf on this tour should be televised differently than the PGA Tour. You know, I, I just finished with, you know, Dustin Johnson you know, with one of the greatest performances we've ever seen at Kapalua and playing against the best players in the world. And that needs to be televised a certain way. But 
this tour, which, yes, is an extremely competitive tour, I believe has more star power throughout the field than a normal PGA Tour event. And consequently, what you're going to see today, which is something that I think we really ought to consider for this tour down the line, you're going to see almost every group play the 17th hole. And I really believe it's more important for the viewers to be able to see Tom Kite or Sandy Lyle or guys like that playing our signature hole than it is to race out on Friday to find somebody that's within a shot of the lead at number 10 when they've only played nine holes in the whole tournament. I, I, I feel like Friday on the Champions Tour should be almost more of a celebration. And look yeah. back, uh, bring the history of these players. The history of the players. World and, Golf Hall of Fame members. You and, know, and, and yeah. I don't know, just maybe we ought to rethink having two announcers with two headsets in the same booth and kind of do it differently. Um, now, Sunday afternoon, or Saturday afternoon in this case, which is finishing day, maybe it's a little different when you get down to the end, but... Um, I don't know. I feel like this tour is so much a celebration of what's been great about the game all these years. Well, I, you know, watching when it used to come, the players would come up and you do a lot of interviews there and how you know, sometimes difficult, but you couldn't get as much of the look of everything that you do. And sometimes circumstances that maybe might not seem like a blessing turn into a blessing to come up with better ideas, don't they? I, I think so. I think so. And, you know, who knows? Ten years from now, golf on television is going to be totally different anyway. We know that people are going to be watching it more on their phones, which they are today than they were 10 yeah. years ago when I talked to you. So I think you'll see golf starting to adapt more in that respect. And JR being new to the, you know, the golf scene and just, you know, the way you have just gotten in there and learned so much and everything. But I was sharing with, we were talking with Kelly Fleer, the tournament manager yesterday, and sharing with uh, JR that it wasn't always real-time scoring and computers, you know. People were writing them down and having put baggies over their hands as they were writing the scores if it was raining. And so your take on it, what you're learning about Mark's your involvement. Eyes, the logistics of running a tournament, especially in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. I mean, how has that changed, especially here? Well, it has changed in that it's gotten way more expensive. <laughs> but unfortunately, it hasn't changed enough for golf to adapt like maybe you've seen some of the other sports. And and that is one of the inherent problems that golf has. Um, it's so expensive to televise because there's nobody's figured out a shortcut yet to televising golf. Your playing field is not 94 feet long. It's 200 acres. Yeah. You know, if you have... I mean, there's as many cameras at a major golf tournament these days as you would see at a Super Bowl. Now, way more probably because of the size of the playing field. So that is really becoming a logistical issue because it costs so much. The scoring think about it. You know the Super Bowl highest rated scoring event of the year is two teams, one ball and one score. You can keep the score on a piece of paper. Today We've got 42 players, 42 balls, and 42 scores all at the same time. 
and nobody's been able to figure out a way to be more efficient in keeping track of all that. So just the cost of scoring like that, then you compound that with we have no timeouts, we have no stoppage of play, we don't have lines on the field to tell anybody how far it is. It's, it, it is all the elements of golf that make, make it the great game that it is also make it the toughest sport of any to televise. So, Mark Rothing from NBC Golf Channel and JR DeGroote from West Hawaii today. Mark, you were a real pioneer back in the day when websites were beginning to be popular and you had your Golf Hawaii show. So you've watched the evolution of even people watching golf shows because you created a lot of that. And and uh, sounds to me like you're just thinking the way you always have is, you know, of getting ahead of the curve and trying to share that with your associates. And I'm sure there's others that agree with you to a big degree. I, I, I hope you're right, Emily. Um, you know, the real issue in today's television world is that people have DVRs, they have so many different ways to watch programming, that if you have an event that's not a live event, if you have a taped show, like Golf Hawaii was 15 years ago, let's say, people can skip the commercials, they can, they can skip, you know, sponsor mentions of things that pay for it all, but in the case of big time live sporting events, they can't. That's why the greatest value I think for sponsors and TV networks and paying rights fees is always going to be in the big live sporting events. But with golf, we've got to figure out a way to make it still viable and not have the cost keep skyrocketing. Yeah. Well, this week here, I mean, what storylines are getting you excited about the Champions Tour, you know, kicking off there? You know, I think the, the Langer story just continues to intrigue me. He, he looks 30 years younger than his age. Year after year, he's having these seasons where we say he can't possibly do it again next year, and then he does. Um, I, I just wonder how long is he going to be able to do this, and I think the answer is for a while. I don't see an end to it. Uh, and you look at all these other players and listen to them, everybody's trying to figure out a way to beat Langer. Yeah. It's like he's a different kind of a, a target on the leaderboard, and that's the way Tiger was 18 years ago. Is it becoming a mental thing for I think it's. I think it is. I think it is. You, you know, they know Langer is not the kind of player that's going to beat himself. You know, with some players... You think, oh, there's a big mistake in him. There's a triple bogey in him, or maybe there's some give up in a guy, or who knows what. But with Langer, there's only one way to beat him, and that is to beat him. He's not going to beat himself. You got to go out and beat him. And so I think mentally that puts added pressure on the rest of the players when they're seeing his name. Yeah. And here, uh, a lot of the talk has been about the win last year and some win in the projection. I mean, from a commentator's point of view, how does that change this tournament? Because this course has been known to be easy if it's down. You know, I would think that the chasers, the pursuers, always would like to see some win. Mm -hmm. um, everybody would like to have a nice calm Friday, and, or Thursday in this case, first round. Uh, and it's actually pretty calm today. 
But if you get behind at Hawalalai, if you get yourself four or five shots behind after the first round, and the course plays easy the next two days, you have almost no chance of catching up. It is so hard to make up five shots in these calm conditions that I would think for pursuers, anybody that gets a little behind after today's round, they'll want to see some more. What's the best part about having a tournament at Walleye, you know, on the Big Island? The people, yeah. the, the feeling, just coming here, it's like coming home. I, I've had several players say that to me. It's not like going to another stop on a year-long tour. It feels like coming home, and as beautiful as it is and as impeccably conditioned as it is, I still think... It's kind of the mana of, of the place that um, is so attractive. It's so compelling for everybody. Um, so that, I think that's what they look forward to more than anything. And nice to see so many making their home on the Big Island or part-time homes. Yeah. You know, Tom Watson certainly made this Hualalai community his and Hillary's community. And yeah, and we're thinking and, about Hillary this week, that, by yeah, the way. He's yeah. back in Kansas City, and, uh, and uh, be tough, Hillary. Well, you you can certainly speak for that. You've been there and done that, fought the cancer battle, and, you know, just do you want to share a few thoughts about that that journey you had, along with uh, Billy Kahu Mitchell and <laughs> Hillary and you, yeah. a lot of your associates and friends? There's always hope. There's always hope, and there were times when I... Could have easily lost hope, and um, you know, starting with the diagnosis, which was dire. Um, but then, even during the treatment, you know, there were times when I would start dragging my chin a little and saying, you know, why me? Oh, what was me? But um, I don't think I ever lost hope. And to me, the message that I I know that I have to carry forward from now whether it's Hillary or anybody else, um, is that there's always hope and you got to have that. And what's helpful from people when you're in that situation? Just hearing from them and, and... Hearing, yeah, hearing from people and probably hearing stories of success like uh -huh. mine. Um, there are a lot of golfers uh, right now that are battling cancer themselves that are from my era as we get older. Some of your people are from the PGA Tour staff right now. I looked for Joe some, Terry the other day. Some of the people on the staff, I have three either players or wives on the regular PGA Tour that are patients at MD Anderson right mm -hmm. now. Lisa Sink, my good friend Stewart's wife, uh, Brian Palmer's wife, uh, Brian Watts, I don't know if you remember that name, yeah. but Mark O'Meara beat him in a playoff to win the Open. Uh, Brian Watts is down there fighting tongue cancer right now. So as we all go on in years, more and more, it's going to become part of our lives. But to everybody um, you know, that's battling it, whether you're a patient or a caregiver, um, just keep up the hope. Well, you and Debbie have been great about getting the message out of how grateful you've been and you know the great care you got at MD Anderson and I got a lot of great care there but I will tell you that the role of the caregiver is so underestimated it is equally as difficult on the caregiver sure. um, as it is on the patient they take I, on two I lifestyles right they do <laughs> and um, 
And I know Tom Watson is, you know, really facing that same thing right now. So, um, you know, it's just as important for everybody to keep in their prayers the caregiver, I think, as it is the patient. And Mark Rolfing, NBC Golf Channel, you've, you know, covered with ABC, you've been covering the PGA Tour for a long time. Some nice news that the PGA Tour champions are going back to Warwick Hills for the Alley Challenge. And it'll be many of the players that played when they were on the PGA Tour. They know the Flint community, the Grand Blanc community, and Detroit community. And you're such an ambassador for Chicago, so you know the importance of cities and all that tie-in with the players when they're moving through a city. So some comments on that past history of the Buick Open and now those same players going back to Warwick Hills. Well, I, I think it's tremendous for that area. You know, if you look at the big metropolitan areas in, in America, like Chicago and New York and L.A. and places like that, Dallas, there's so much going on that a golf tournament that comes or goes in those big markets doesn't impact the community nearly as much as the more medium-level communities. And even if you look at what the Big Island, if you, you think about what this tournament literally has done, and you talked about the, the people that have second homes here now or that come here on holiday, you see Stephen Ames, VJ Singh, these guys have become like island, island boys in a lot of ways. Um, I think the more medium level and smaller communities are the places where tours like the Champions Tour should go, back to places like Flint, back to more sort of mid-level markets as opposed to trying to fight the PGA Tour or even bigger other sports and Places yeah, like, that's been uh, a big LA. announcement for the Detroit area. Marco Mira was there recently with you know for the announcement as well, and because they know that community and the Detroit community is nearby. And when we were kids growing up, we all went out to the Buick Open. Like you say, it made an impact throughout the state. Yeah, and it's it's an, an important I one. I think that, you're going to see golf more and more doing that. If you look at the U.S. Open this year, so Chicago has had 13 U.S. Opens on eight different courses, which is more than any other city in America. U.S. Open this year went basically to a tiny little community in the middle of Wisconsin. And it was just a rousing success. And I think it shows that golf is so compelling when you have the best players or you have the biggest names like Champions Tour. You can have successful events in smaller markets. That's not necessarily the case with other sports. you got to have the stars in other sports to really exist in the major markets. And golf, I, I think these tours, Camp Champions Tour and LPGA particularly, should be looking at places like Springfield, Illinois, and Des Moines, Iowa. Look what the Solheim Cup did in Des Moines, sure. Iowa. It was just massive crowds, and it was wildly successful. I talked with Jack Berry yesterday, a long time white golf writer from Detroit News, I'm sure you know. And uh, he was saying that, oh yeah, I'm sure John Daly will be staying with Kid Rock, just like he did whenever he played in the Buick Open. So yeah, they all have their friends that they've made over the years, and just like we all, all do out here, you know, so that, you're right, it does make a difference it when really a tournament does. like that comes to a, a smaller community. And Mark, just looking at the state of golf, and, and uh, I think people seem really optimistic. I had a wonderful conversation with Wes Wailehua and also from the Aloha Section PGA, and also uh, Greg McLaughlin from the, the president of the PGA Tour Champions, who did run the Tiger Woods Foundation, and 
the Nissan Open, and everybody's really optimistic about not just the Champions Tour, but the state of golf. I think, I think um, for the first time in a long time, golf is starting to address its core fundamental problems. I, I didn't really see that happening for the last decade to the extent it needed to. I saw kind of the dust being swept under the carpet a little too much, but if you look at golf, industry-wide, there's three issues. The game is too difficult, it takes too long, and it costs too much. Almost any challenge or issue or problem can fall into one of those categories. And what I'm starting to see with golf and the industry leaders in golf now is they're figuring out ways to address those things. They're figuring out ways to get more instruction to people so that they can, at an earlier age, learn how to play the game. They're figuring out ways to have the equipment be better so that it, uh, you know, people can be more successful at the game. I am totally getting on the bandwagon of bifurcation. I don't think the equipment has to have the same regulations for junior golfers as it does for the best players. Explain that word. I... Well, bifurcation basically would be having two sets of equipment. So in, in Pop Warner football, you have a smaller football than the NFL. Oh, okay. In the high school, you have a smaller football. You know, kids' hands grow. Uh, there is no reason why junior golfers have to play with the same regulated equipment, in my mind, that the uh -huh. best players in the world. So I think golf's got to start going in that direction. In terms of time, it takes too long. In today's world, people don't have as much time. The reason that Top Golf has become so wildly successful, one of the reasons is you can go play for an hour or two. I've started really going down the path of coming up with plans where people can pay and play the amount of golf that they have time for. There's no reason if you have an hour and a half go play golf, you shouldn't be able to play six holes of golf or seven holes of golf or whatever. Almost everything we do in this world is based on the amount of time. We pay by time. An airline seat over dinner, for that matter, a five-course French meal is going to cost more than going to McDonald's. Mm -hmm. Time is money. So I think we're now starting to look at, at the time um, aspect of it. And then the, the toughest one is cost. Uh, the game is just getting to the point where it's, it's cost prohibitive for a lot of people. And I think, you know, raising the revenues is going to be difficult. There's going to be a cap. So how do we lower costs? You can start with golf course maintenance, for example. Golf course maintenance is one of the reasons why driving the price of green fees up is the only way to make it work. As opposed to, if we started maintaining our courses a little differently, if the grass didn't have to be lush green and take so much water and so much fertilizer, so much attention from the green staff, if, if people didn't expect that the greens had to be 13 on the step meter like they see at Hualalai, and that, that we didn't have to mow the greens in the morning, let's say, we could mow them in the afternoon, and then you could start people off both nines in the morning because the maintenance guys wouldn't be mowing the greens on the backside. Now you're lowering the cost and you're getting more people out there, and you're introducing new people to the game, and you're letting them play two hours of golf instead of 
before. Are those the conversations you're hearing, like at the state of the Starting to hear them from West Dillowa section. I'm you, starting to hear it from all of the stakeholders in the game that are really the decision makers. Yeah. I mean, you know, Jack Nicholas is, a, is the face of our game in a lot of ways and, and a great spokesman, but he's not making the decisions at the individual facilities. We have to get down to those levels in order to really enact some change that is going to be meaningful in addressing it's too difficult, it takes too long, it costs too much. Well, it's our, always fun to wrap up with you. Yeah. Our backyard golf course is having the same issue right now, the Waikoloa Golf Course. Right. You know, the, the fees pay for that. And, you know, there's a large movement saying shut the course down turn it into a park. But now they've discovered we had this conversation last night. I, we, I don't know if you were with me, but some of uh, people forget that a park needs to be watered. Yeah. All those things still need to happen. There's no revenue like the golf course brings into our, we both live in Waikoloa Village, yeah. brings into our well, community. It, here's an interesting thing. Ben Crenshaw and I talked about this a great deal Tuesday at Kapalua because we're going to have to renovate that course. It's almost 30 years old and needs some renovation. But we were talking about brown versus green. So in Scotland, forever and ever, the home of golf, the golf courses have had sort of a brownish tint to them. And that's why people play golf for 10 pounds over there. The maintenance budgets are, are minuscule compared to ours. But the interesting thing about brown, the lusher green a golf course is, the more difficult it is for the average player. People are going to shoot lower scores, drive the ball further, and and really have a whole lot more fun on a golf course that's slightly brownish than on one that's See, They get more green. roll. They, they might have get more, more lucky roll, bounces. More bounce. You can run the ball up. You can play sure. along the ground instead of in play the air. Play a lot of different kinds of games. So it's it's almost like we go to all this trouble to spend all this money to make the course look a certain way when in fact the two things that happen are you have to charge people a lot more money and they don't play as well. Sometimes less is more is is good not just in golf, right? There you go. That was a little bit of a rant, wasn't it? No, but it's so it's so true and I think people are really coming around I to that. I think they're starting to realize Whether it. it's a party they go to or the, the way you put on a fundraiser or the way you organize events like you're talking about, how much do you have to do with TV to make gotta it worthwhile? Gotta be more efficient. So. Gotta be more efficient. Well, I got two things for you to close. Okay. You said you're gonna go see Tiger and you saw him at his first tournament and now you're seeing him now. What do you think of the comeback? Is this one just for real? I will tell you I saw Tiger Woods at the President's Cup for the first time. I hadn't seen him this year. That was the first time I saw him, so that's what, in September. He looked phenomenal. He just looked healthy. He looked happy. He looked, he wasn't bulked up. He looked lean. And I saw a gleam in his eye that I hadn't seen in quite some time. When I watched the bombs, I was not there. Um, so I haven't really been there in person yet. But um, I saw an early fist bump, you know, on the <laughs> on the fourth hole with only 200 people in the gallery. But that showed me joy, showed me enthusiasm, it showed me it meant something. I, I feel really good about this comeback. Now, having said that, How's he going to beat Dustin Johnson? How is he going to beat Richard Fowler? How is he going to beat George Speed? I don't know. 
going to be a difficult task. And I'm hopeful that he keeps in perspective what his goals are, because I think it's going to have to be a slower process of what I would call steady improvement as opposed to going out and winning in San Diego next week. I don't think that's really realistic. But knowing Tiger, he's never going to tee off in the tournament if he doesn't think he can, can win. Yeah. The other thing is, um, Dara, I think he's going to have to change the way he plays. Because as well as we saw him driving in the Bahamas, as far as he drove it, I don't think his body will hold up over any extended period of time to him trying to play a power game. He is such a good putter. He, he really is brilliant with that putter that if he plays a little bit of a different style, I think his career will be a longer career. That would argue to me to maybe start looking at some different venues for him to play that typically he doesn't. I would have thought, for example, Wileye last week would be a really good friend. Never played there. You can't overpower that course. Nobody even tried to. I think he would be brilliant at Wileye. Um, as opposed to now he's going to Torrey, where he's historically done really well, but it is a long, hard, with deep, rough golf course, and I'm not sure those will be the best venues for him. Well, where I, he's done so well, there's ex expectations. Well, there yeah. are, but it's not the same course yeah. as, as he did well on either. I, I think he'll have a better chance, let's say, down the line to win the Masters than he would be the U.S. Open, for example. Um, I think less rough, um, more maneuvering the ball is, is the kind of golf where he will thrive at in this sort of second part. And Mark, you played college golf with DePaul, was I it? I did. And with uh, Dan Quayle? I did. Yeah, weren't you roommates, if I recall correctly? Yes. And then you played on the Asian tour, and then you ended up in Kapalua and decided it was time maybe to not try to, you know, play on the tour. But So you've kind of been there. You've seen so many people that played good high school golf, college golf, and the difference between college golf and having to make it on the on the tour is really something. But you, you've been a, such a friend to so many young people that have gone through that process. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that you experienced some of that yourself. Well, thank you. Um, I was lucky in that I, you know, spent two and a half years chasing the dream. Um, you know, played 37 tournaments my last year, all of Europe, all of Asia. Um, went back to the qualifying school, missed again, and just realized I wasn't good enough. That's a hard thing to say to yourself. The line is so fine. Um, if you take a look at last year's money list on the PJ Tour, I'm going to say if you shot 70 every time you teed off last year on the PJ Tour 70, I'll bet you made about maybe a million and a half. If you shot 69 every time you teed off, I'm going to say you made between five and six million dollars. So that's one shot a day. Difference between 69 and 70 every day. Wow, that's quite a stat. Where, where do you find, I'm not sure that's exactly right. But I get but the idea, like right. The, the point yeah. is, where do you find that shot? And, and it's really yeah. hard to find that one. Well, I grew up dreaming to be on the LPGA and, you know, tried a couple times and then 
left left it for 20 years and then tried you know other little mini tours after 20 years but that's the fun of golf is that those of us that have done that grown up thinking and you know very quickly realized not quickly for you it was a couple of years that maybe not for me but that's what's so great about the game it's still in us we've got it can play for many years and and play you know we all need people i played with someone in the pro-am yesterday who's 77 he played great well, so, it's kind of back to the game. cancer discussion. The great thing about golf is hope. If you think about it, the thing that is, is so unique about golf is, and I don't care what level golf you are, there's always hope you're going to shoot your best round ever today. And people love traveling to play golf because there's this hope you're going to see your favorite course ever. This new one is going to be your favorite course you've ever seen. It's that hope, you know, about it that I think makes golf so... You know, so unique. JR, you've become a more frequent golfer to knowing the game and playing, and you know, you're such a good athlete anyway, a hockey player. And, and uh, But your thoughts about someone coming, growing into the game kind of at a little later age, or not later, but not a junior golfer. Yeah, I mean, I have those shots that keep me coming back, and we have plenty of courses here that keep me going out. So I think uh, we'll see the progression, hopefully. And we're, we're grateful. I know we both are that you always have time for us, Mark. It's really a pleasure. Mark Rolfe, NBC Golf Channel. And Emily, Emily T. Thanks. Gale, the Emily T. Gale Talk Story, and J.R. DeGroote with West Hawaii today. Uh, gosh, lucky we live Hawaii, eh? Yeah. <laughs> All right. I thanks, love Detroit, Dave. too, by the way. Yeah. I got say? one last thing okay. to do. Uh, I think NBC has a Super Bowl this year. They do. Are you a football fan? I am. Do you have a loyalty? No. Who you got in the final out of the final four? I, I got the Patriots going all the way. Yeah. Um, I was at the Super Bowl last year, and I'll tell you, if that team could win that football game, which there was no chance they were going to win that game, yeah. um, how can you not say they're going to win now when, when everybody's starting even? I, I think it's going to be Patriots all the way. I think Jags will give them a good game. I think it would be phenomenal if the Vikings were in their hometown Super Bowl. Uh, the Ryder Cup in Minneapolis was the greatest sporting event I think I've ever seen. Because of the fans? Uh, just the, the fans were phenomenal. The level that the athletes performed under the pressure was was phenomenal. But I just think this Minneapolis Super Bowl, and I'm a little biased because it's on NBC, but I think Minneapolis is going to be an incredible Super Bowl. Yeah. But New England is going to be tough to beat. Right. Um, in that regard, do you know any of the guys that would be good to talk to you about that because we're planning on doing some kind of Sunday thing with uh, hopefully their picks or their loyalties. Um, let me send you a list. Let okay. me think about it as we're going on. I don't think I have your cell. Give me your cell and I'll send you a text. J-R and it's the group, right? Is there an E? Yeah. Okay. It's 808. I used to have it. 987 